Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dance Notes History. I'm a little bit breathless. You find me a little bit breathless at the moment because I've just climbed up one of the world's longest staircases, known as Jacob's Ladder on the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic, hundreds of miles away from the African coast, hundreds of miles away from the other, its other nearest islands, like Ascension and Tristan de Cunha. It was here that Napoleon Bonaparte was famously imprisoned, and I'm here looking at that history and lots of other history as well. It's here that thousands of liberated African slaves were brought when the Royal Navy captured the slaving ships that were taking them across the New World in the 19th century. So lots to do here. So lots of history here. Action here, there'll be podcasts, TV shows coming at you thick and fast. Watch this space. At the top of the steps, I'm sitting in a fort which once housed uh, the king of the Zulus and some of his uncles in the 19th century. So that harks back to the last podcast on your feed, which is Saul David talking about the Zulu War. The Zulus continued to be a thorn in the side of the British Empire and necessitated imprisoning these senior Zulus on this island fortress right at the end of the century. But today's podcast doesn't have anything to do with the Zulus. Today's podcast is the remarkable Max Eisen. We are focusing a lot on the Holocaust at the moment, given that it is the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and Holocaust Awareness Day. Shocking figures out today about young people's awareness of what the Holocaust was, what happened, why it matters. And so in our own little way, we're trying to do our bit as well. So feel free to share this and the other Holocaust podcasts with people in your life who you feel could use a bit of the historical context. This is a conversation I recorded with Max Eisen. He entered Auschwitz as a child. He lost all of his family members there within seconds, minutes, days of arriving. His story is extraordinary and is typical of the experience of millions of Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, Poles and other so-called undesirables in Hitler's Third Reich. You can watch this interview with Max Eisen on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. Just go on there, watch it for free. Uh, use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, and you get six weeks totally free. While you're there, check out Mary Fulbrook, Professor Mary Fulbrook, talking about the Holocaust, in which she talks about her work, uh, both extraordinarily scholarly and powerful, and other Holocaust-related documentaries. So please go and check that out, POD6. In the meantime, everyone, here is Max Eisen. What was the last night in your family home like? Well, the last night was a celebration of the Seder, uh, Passover dinner. 
And the Seder is a Hebrew word meaning the order of the dinner. And the entire family uh, was dressed in their best. This is 1944. Um, most of European Jewry by that time were all murdered. In Hungary, even though we lived under a fascist system, but we are still living in our homes. My father and uncle were home by some miracle from the labor battalions. Um, coming from a traditional Orthodox family, Passover is a big to do. It's a very difficult work for my mother and for the women especially, because the house is turned upside down. Everything is cleaned of bread products, and special foods are prepared. And the dinner starts with the youngest child asking uh, four questions. Why is this night different than any other night? Why do we eat bitter herbs? And the father answers, we eat bitter herbs to remember how difficult it is. It was for the ancient Jews to be as slaves in, it, in Egypt. Why do we eat with a cushion behind our back like a king? It's to say that we are free people now, and freedom is a very important thing. And there are two other questions I can't recall offhand. And uh, so we went through the entire dinner, and um, we retired about 12 o'clock. My two younger brothers, I had uh, Eugene, my younger brother was, uh, I guess he was about 10, and Alfred was uh, 6, and my baby sister was about 8 and a half or 9 months old. And my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were part of this big dinner. And my uncle and aunt, we all lived three families in this big house. And we had, I had other aunts and uncles who lived in nearby towns. And we retired about 12 o'clock. And we knew that uh, next morning we'll get up at a leisurely time. And we'll walk to the synagogue. And by this time we were all had yellow stars. And um, I remember out in the yard, it was a beautiful balmy night. My grandfather and my father and uncle were talking politics. My grandfather said, if we manage to survive four to five months, we're going to be liberated by the Red Army coming from the East. So we were that close, he thought. And um, that's not what happened because early morning our gate was kicked in by gendarmes. Seconds later, they kicked in our the door to our bedroom, and they were in our premises, yelling and screaming. Um, you have two minutes to pack a bundle we are taking away. And if you have any money or jewelry, hand it over, because where you are going, you are going to have no need of this. And uh, my mother, being a practical lady, she told us kids to put on layers of clothing. My father said, put on your winter boots. We had custom-made winter boots. And uh, he went into the quarters of my grandparents to see how my grandparents were doing. My grandfather was 77, and my grandmother was 75, and I guess my uncle and aunt were in the far end of this building. So uh, it was a terrible moment. It being was truly a rude awakening. Hungarian gendarmes are a very crude bunch. They uh, wear black riding boots and they have a big black fedora hat with red rooster feathers. 
and they have a gun with a two-foot bayonet fixed to this gun. And um, in this commotion, uh, we had a big Alsatian, whose name was Farkas. Uh, in Hungarian, Farkas means a wolf. He was the, our protector. He was an amazing friend of mine. And um, this commotion, our neighbor comes running in. Her, her name was Iliklinka. And the gendarmes were yelling at her to get out of here. This is not your business. But she stood her ground, and she walked up to my mother, and she said to her, Ethel, where are you taking this baby? Why don't you leave the baby with me? I can hear this, her asking my mother, and I keep thinking, what was my mother thinking? Would she have left my baby? Would she have survived? We will never know. And we were hustled out from our home and carried uh, uh, escorted by two gendarmes like a bunch of criminals to the school where Jews were collected the whole day from out outlying farms and um, 500 Jewish people were sealed off in two schoolrooms the second night of Passover. And we were, I guess, about 15-20 minutes from my home walking to school. It took about 15-20 minutes. and. Um, we're stuck in these two schoolrooms. We're not allowed to move out, get out of the room. And uh, it was a horrible night. And um, the young kids, older people, whose comforts were gone, whose bed was no longer there. You had a floor to, to lay down on the floor. I mean, it was a horrible event. And uh, all this happened on, it was April the 14th, 1944. And it happened that that particular day, April the 14th, was the Sabbath and the first day of Passover. And this Passover was again uh, Friday night on the Sabbath, except that this time in 2019, it was on April the 19th, the first night. So um, this was a horrible event, that this is where it all started. and. Um, then we were sort of on a treadmill that we couldn't get off. It just... What did you think was going to happen to you? Had, had you? had you heard rumors of what was happening to Jews elsewhere across Eastern and Central Europe? No. In 1944, there was a terrible thing that we didn't know. Um, not knowing is a terrible thing. And we didn't know what was happening to the Jews, just a few, maybe a couple hundred kilometers from our place across the Carpathian Mountains in occupied Poland. It was kept under wrap. The Nazis had a massive apparatus of deception and a ministry of propaganda. And uh, we should have had some warnings, but we didn't know. My grandfather, who was a cavalry officer in the First World War, fighting for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, Jews would put down their life for the, for the Emperor Franz Joseph. We heard certain things, but my grandfather said, no, these people would never do things like that. Some horrible things everybody thought it was not true, but not knowing is a terrible thing. And, and, and so when you were in the school or loaded onto the train, what did you think was going to happen? 
Well, once I was in the train, I knew that I was in a box. And uh, I mentioned in my book that we were taken away in 1942. Hungary deported about 40,000 Jews, they, whom they said that they were not Hungarian citizens. So when Czechoslovakia was partitioned, um, <clears throat> my mother's family, my maternal family, were stuck in Slovakia, and we were given to Hungary. So my mother was called a Slovakian, <laughs> and my aunt, they were both now coming from Slovakia, and uh, we were picked up in 1942. My grandfather and my grandmother and my aunt Bella, they were not taken away because my grandfather had all kinds of decorations. I mean, he was a bona fide uh, you know, officer. And uh, we were on a train for about two weeks and in a place near the Tatar Pass, which was, uh, you could pass over the Carpathian Mountains into the Ukraine, to a place called Kamenets Podolsk. We didn't know what this place was all about. And this is where Hungarian Jews were taken to Kamenets Podolsk and shot by these Einsatzgruppen, the SS killing units near the Nestor River. So, um, and in 44, you're in a boxcar, and I knew and I kept thinking of that 1942 trip where the doors were not locked. The gendarmes were sitting with us in the cattle car. Their feet were dangling down in the open door. And this time the doors were locked and bolted down. And I knew that there was no way out of here. But we have never dreamt of that we are going to uh, face brutal death and gas and all that sort of thing. That was. Nobody ever thought of that. Tell me about conditions on that train. How many how many days and nights were you on the train? We were on the train, um, I believe, three nights and uh, four days, or four nights and three and three days. It was the most terrible condition that you can imagine. It's like you open up a can of sardines and you see how tightly they are packed, and this is how we were packed into a cattle car. There was no way you couldn't move around. You were stuck in one place. I couldn't see my mother holding a baby and other mothers holding their babies in their arms. And my two younger brothers were stuck among taller people. My father was somewhere else in, in the cattle car, my grandfather, and I knew that I was totally on my own. And uh, you were rolling with the train. You could hear the clicking of the wheels on the tracks, on the joints of the tracks. It was like a steady, clatter like a machine gun shooting, click, click, click. And um, suddenly these massive people, you fall asleep, you're so tired, and you're rolling with the train, and suddenly you hear the whistle of the locomotive. And you wake up with a start, and you think that you just had a nightmare. And you realize that you're actually living in a nightmare. Initially, they gave us a pail of water and a pail for the toilet. And that water, whoever was near that water, the water was gone immediately. It was never replaced. The doors were never open. Imagine the stink, you know, the slop, the slop that was sloshing around from the bucket of the toilet and um, not being able to go to the toilet for three days, four days. Um, it was two, two older people died and we had to keep these bodies. We couldn't dispose of the bodies. I remember when the train came to a stop because the locomotive needed to uh, have water and coal and 
we were screaming for water and water. And uh, gendarmes outside, they said, if you want water, throw out jewelry through the little opening on the cattle car. So we were fleeced of everything that we had. And we were uh, taken to the brickyard in Kasha. They took everything away from us, but people still had something. They were, they were talking, should we believe him? And they said, look, we need water or we're going to die. So they collected a few rings and they threw it out. And the gendarmes had a cynical laugh and they, they said a terrible thing. They never brought water. So uh, somebody was boosted up at one of these stops and he was reading the name on the station. And uh, we realized, uh, somebody realized that we were now in occupied Poland. We left Hungary and that was a big shock. We thought that we were going to be resettled somewhere in the east. This is what the Nazis said. See, they didn't say we we're going to take you to the death camps and shoot you or gas you. Uh, they said we we're going to resettle you in the east and you will be working on farms. Families will be together. And so we now all of a sudden knew that we were in occupied Poland. And then on the fourth night, the train came to a stop. It was being jockeyed back and forth, and I knew sort of in my guts that we had finally arrived. Nothing could be worse than what I've just experienced these four terrible days. And um, suddenly the doors of the cattle car opened, light flooded in. There was a man in a striped jacket and a cap, and he was yelling at us, Raus schnell, out fast. And uh, we just followed, simply followed orders. You know, we were like a bunch of zombies. Imagine four days stuck in, a, in one spot. You were practically stuck to the floor in this mess. And people started to move around like larvae in a cocoon, you know, trying to find their bundles in this mess on the floor. And they keep yelling at us, don't worry about your bundles, you'll have it delivered. You see, the deception worked 100% on this platform. They knew exactly how to process Hungarian people, Hungarian Jews. So we are on the platform. There's a terrible smell of burning flesh in the air. Um, there was darkness be beyond the platform. This was all lit up, but I could see thousands of little lights all over. And I thought that I was in some kind of a big uh, industrial area because I could see flames coming from behind me two or three chimneys, flames, and, uh, and um, selection began. We were separated. Everything went fast in an orderly fashion. And this is what a, one of the SS guards who was on the platform when Hungarian Jews were brought in 1944. I was at his trial in Germany in Lüneburg in 2015. He said, we had to do everything in an orderly fashion because at times from Hungary, there were three transports sitting on the tracks inside Birkenau, Auschwitz. So no goodbyes were said. Selections, they said, my mother with a baby in her arm and my two little brothers and my grandparents, my aunt, they were sent to the left. And my father and uncle went in front of this SS officer. He said to the right, and I came in front of him he looked at me, he sent me to the right. How old were you? I was 15 years old. 
We had no idea what this was all about. All I could see, SS, SS soldiers. I've never seen soldiers like this in my life. I've seen the Czechs, I've seen Hungarians. These were crude lot, you know. I remember seeing the skull and crossbones on their uh, caps and helmets. And these were the units of the Totenkopf division who were in charge of handling the Jews from all over Europe. So my father and uncle and I, we were now in the clutches of an SS guard unit, and we were processed. We were taken to a barrack. We had to get undressed. They took away our clothing, and the only thing we were allowed to keep were our boots. The next stage was they cut our hair, and the next stage was a shower, and from there we were taken to a wooden barrack, and we were put into triple tier bunks, and this was a, I've never seen a triple tier bunk in my life in this type of a, uh, a barrack, and uh, I was able to lie down after standing for all these days and nights uh, on wooden planks, and you know, it was a wonderful thing to be able to lie down and get up, to get off your feet, and early morning I was yelling and screaming, Rouse Schnell. The bunks were being hit with these uh, truncheons, man in striped outfits, and I couldn't understand what am I doing in a place where all, with all these criminals who wear striped outfits? Because <clears throat> as a child, I knew that if you committed a crime, you were put in jail and you wore a striped outfit. We didn't know. We were hauled out in front of the barrack. This was May the 18th, I guess, or 12th. Um, it was a beautiful, bright morning, and I am looking at this huge place of hundreds of barracks, and I see guard towers all over the place, and I'm looking back, and I see four chimneys with flames and smoke, and the sights and the smells, guard dogs barking and harsh orders being given, and I couldn't figure out what this place I could see emaciated people behind barbed wire fences. And we were all naked. Two men in their striped outfits were, they brought a canister of liquid. We were given metal dishes. It was called a shizzle. And this, once you were given a shizzle, you had to, it was yours. And some people received a smaller one, others received a bigger one. And you know, that became a big fight eventually, because if you had a small, Shizzle, you know, that's all, that was your ration, your portion. And they ladled out a portion of uh, tea, it was some kind of a herbal tea. This was my first drink of, of liquid in four days. And my father asked these two men in these striped outfits, uh, are we going to see our parents today? Because everything on the platform was said. They're going for disinfection, you will see them in the morning, see this deception worked perfectly for them. And we believed it. And uh, so they asked my father, where did you come from? He said, we just we arrived in the middle of the night from Hungary. He said, um, in 1944, you don't know what this place is all about. This and they said, your families have gone through the chimney. And um, I kept thinking, how does a person, why would a person go to a chimney? I think my father and uncle got it, what was going on, and I knew it within a few hours. I realized what this place was all about. 
So this was um, our initiation into um, that life. We were given tattooed numbers and striped outfits, and we were no longer a human being. We were a slave laborer working for the Nazis. And um, they asked for people who can do farm work, and we came from a farming area, and my maternal family had a big farm. So my father and uncle, we put up our hands because my father said, well, on a farm we'll probably be able to have some potatoes or beets or turnip. And uh, about a hundred of us were selected out and marched down to Auschwitz one. And um, went to, came to this big gate and they were, uh, all these SS guards, they were brimming, they were right in front of the gate. It was like a fortress. It was uh, being guarded. The gate was always loaded with SS guards. There was a lot of action there. Units coming out, units going back. They were being guarded by guards. And um, there were brick buildings, two-story brick buildings. And it was probably one or two o'clock in the afternoon where we marched through this gate. It was a strange world, and uh, we were taken to a barrack. And uh, a little while later, a couple arrived. He was a small guy. He was a German psychopathic killer. His name was uh, Herman. He introduced himself and he said, from now on, if you don't follow my orders, you're either beaten, you'll be beaten to death or whatever, but you'll, you'll die from hunger or from beating, but you'll surely go to the gas chamber. And this was our initiation. Can I ask, what were you overwhelmed by the news that your, your siblings, your mum, your grandparents had, had been killed? I mean, how did you process that trauma whilst you were still going through this terrible thing yourself? Well, by the next day, we knew what, what happened to them. There was no time to grieve because you were, you were on the edge of a razor blade here every second. Once this Herman took over, he was a couple of this unit of 100 people. And um, my father and uncle were truly my guardian angels there for the next two months. They kept me going. I mean, to be uh, parachuted in into a place like this, how do you get acclimatized? There's no time to, there's no easy way to get used to the way of, to a way of life here. It's a difficult life. You work 10 to 12 hours hard labor. And uh, you have to do with a lot of strangers who were there a few months before or a year before. And uh, people here would kill for a crumb of bread. And these things were shocks uh, that hit me. You know, I mean, uh, you received a little bit of a portion. And if you didn't ki- watch it, somebody would um, steal it from you, grab it out of your hand. And um, so we knew, and there was no time to grieve. And... Um, you, were, you had to be focused every second of how you're going to survive from second to second, how you're going to put one foot in front of the other. And you're, you lived on a 300-calorie diet, and your clothing was um, a striped pair of pants, a striped jacket and a cap. You had no underwear, no socks. You didn't have an extra T-shirt, no toilet paper, a toothbrush. You didn't have a locker. You had a bunk. And um, and all these things are starting to uh, play havoc with your body. 
you're on a liquid diet, a cup of tea in the morning. I think the worst thing was every morning you had to get out of your bed. I think it was about six o'clock. You got your cup of tea and you run down in front of the barrack and there was a bell counting. And this was morning and night. So on a good day, can you imagine counting about 30,000 slave laborers? Every barrack, uh, the couples lined us up, five in line in a military fashion. You had to space out how, you know, the distances. And you had to stand there in a military fashion and the couple, if you didn't follow orders, if you didn't line up, he was a whack you in the back of your head. And on a good day, it could take maybe an hour and a half. And uh, then they, they were all tabulated. There was a logger Schreiber. A logger uh, Schreiber is a writer who collected all this information. And he was a um, Polish political prisoner. His name was Sirankiewicz. He after the war, he was liberated and he survived. He became the first prime minister in Poland. So if there was a person missing, if the count wasn't right, you could stand there for three to four hours. People would simply drop dead just standing there. You know, that standing was a terrible thing. So lunch was, uh, we were out on the field. The first day uh, we were taken out about five, six, seven kilometers. And, um, they were um, size, you know what a size looks like? A farmer would cut with a size of wheat or... Uh, um, <clears throat> and this is what we had to use. Some of these size, the blades were small, some were that big. And um, it was a fight who is going to grab a small one. And you really had to push your way through. You, you really had to fight for every advantage that you could have. And they gave you a sharpening stone. And these were erzat stones. They were, they would break very easily. And the commandant, we had a commandant uh, who was an SS sergeant. He said, if you break the, if you break the stone, you'll be shot on the spot. That's sabotage. And lunch was um, a half an hour. Uh, we received uh, some swap that brought out these containers, it was called a castle, um, soup stank to high heaven, and uh, it was mostly liquid. Imagine a hundred people line up for this canister, for this ladle of soup, and you get to know a few days later that the thick part is on the bottom of the soup, and if you don't know the guy who ladles, those that know the guy who does the ladling, he'll go down to the bottom and give you maybe a little thicker stuff, you know. They're trying to figure out, and you get a whack on your head. And you stand there, and you receive your ladle. And I said, I'm not going to eat this. This it was just awful. My father practically crammed it down my throat. And you know, three, four days later, the soup tasted pretty good. The trouble was, it wasn't enough. So I, my first day impressions, uh, and you waited. Sometimes there was some leftover, and I said, repeat, repeta, means repeat that you could line up and get a little bit more. So those that were could fight hard, they would get up front. Everything was a fight here for every little bit of extra food. And when it was all gone, I mean, two or three people would try to dive in into this castle, into this container with their heads. It was so horrible. I mean, I said, 
I will never do this. It was such a terrible action. And, you know, eventually you get used to, to all these things. I mean, the first few days were a shock. And, um, and then you march back to camp about 7 o'clock, and you receive your dinner, which is a cup of Erza's coffee and a thin slice of bread and a tiny square of margarine. And this is your diet, about 300 calories. And imagine what your body is like. You're, you can see your body fast disappearing right in front of your eyes. You have no socks and your heels. I was lucky to have my boots. But you know, my boots got soaking wet during the day. Then we had to drain swamps. And you had to save your boots because your boots were the most important thing. Once your boots were gone, you received a pair of wooden clogs. And you had to tie, I tied my sh the shoelaces of my boots around my wrists, and I used it as a pillow uh, so people wouldn't, they would try to steal my boots, I would know. But in the morning, these boots are hard as a rock, and you have to get your feet into it. And your heels are bloody wounds. And you need to deal with all these things. Cutting, you know, with a sigh, uh, the blisters, both hands were full of blisters and they were breaking. Your hands were flesh and blood. And you couldn't run to a doctor. There was no such thing. You had to deal with all these things. Bite the bullet and keep on going. And uh, for two months, my father and uncle we were, and I were together. And then they were selected out one night. And I never saw them again after that. Why were they selected? Well, because um, this is July. Um, <clears throat> tens of thousands of slave laborers were worked to death in huge German factories all around Auschwitz I and Auschwitz II. There were ammunition factories and constructions and all that sort of thing. So they knew that the Russian army was coming, and so the German companies, they loaded their equipment, sent it back to the fatherland. So if there's no more work, then we don't need all these bodies. We're not going to feed them this 300 calories. And the uh, selections were in the middle of the night. So it went like this. You're sleeping the sleep of the dead. And suddenly the loudspeakers come on, powerful loudspeakers. And you have this reflex action that you fly right out of your bunk. And it says, Achtung, Achtung. All prisoners run down naked and follow the others to this barrack for selection. And we all knew what selection was. We knew it was certain that. My father and my uncle and I, we were separated by that time. They were in a different barrack than I was. And um, I didn't know what happened to them. Next morning, before appell, before lining up, I ran to their barrack and they were not there. I had to go to work and I came back at night and they were still not there. I ran to the quarantine. They were several quarantine barracks that were quarantined off inside Auschwitz one. And these were people who were taken eventually up the road or to the gas chambers in Birkenau, Auschwitz II. And I, meant, I happened to see them and I was yelling to the name Eisen and my father and uncle came to the wire, to the fence. And we had no time to talk. My father gave me a blessing because the guard from the tower was yelling. I was past the tripwire. He said, if you don't move, I'll shoot. 
And my father gave me a blessing, and he told me that if I managed to survive, uh, I need to tell the world what happened here. I was devastated. I knew that this is the end of my family. So about 25 years ago, somebody who went to work as a volunteer to uh, process documents in Auschwitz Museum, archives, found this document where my father and uncle's name are on this document. They were selected out for uh, ex uh, for uh, Streptococcus hemolyticus by pharmaceutical companies. It doesn't say pharmaceutical companies, but this is what they were selected for, never to be seen again. You see, they were injected, the process when they were injecting these people with all kinds of bad things to produce pharmaceuticals. And uh, this happened in July the 9th, 1944, and uh, I was alone in Auschwitz I. So um, that was a terrible parting, and uh, here in the men's camp, Nobody would take you under their wing. Everybody was out there for himself because your life was that difficult. You had to be so focused. I was very lucky that my grandfather and my uncles who were farmers, especially my grandfather who hammered into my head, he gave me so many work skills and life skills. And um, I think those things helped me survive Auschwitz. Um, Actually, after my father and uncle were gone, about a week later, I had a terrible beating by an SS guard out in the field, and he hit my head with the butt of his gun, and um, I was bleeding, and couldn't stop the bleeding. And uh, I went into shock, and I was thrown into a ditch. You know, you lose a lot of blood, and you are done. And um, I remember the undercouple who was a Polish political prisoner, he came to me in the ditch and my head was still bleeding and he tore off a piece of my jacket and he told me to urinate on it and he put it on my wound and it stopped the bleeding. There's something in urine, you know, that would stop the bleeding. And that saved my life, you know, but I kept thinking, I'm done. Once you lost your legs, you were useless. And I remember the commandant uh, Sergeant Kunz was his name. He was an Austrian. He was about six foot five with a big Luger pistol on his right side and a cigarette in his mouth. And he looked at me in the ditch and he said this sign, and this sign meant that you're going up in smoke. And I knew that my... It was only hours or minutes before I'm going to be taken to the gas. So at the end of the day, they put me on a two-wheeler that carried all the, implement, the tools, shovels, and pickaxes, brought back to camp. And uh, this uh, Stashek, the uh, undercouple, he, he got two other inmates to take me to Barrack 21, which was a surgery department. Um, <clears throat> and there was a ward upstairs. And this was a... They had a surgery... Uh, simply because they brought the International Red Cross and showed them, look, we take good care of our workers. It was part of the reception the Nazis used. The two surgeons were two Polish political prisoners. Um, one was a Dr. Rzeszko, he was a chief surgeon, and his assistant was a Dr. Sobieszczanski. And they operated on me, and I was put up in the ward upstairs, and the next day, 
I remember this doctor coming and looking at me. My head was all bandaged up with paper bandages. And uh, the thing was that if you couldn't walk away on your own feet two days after, that's all you had is two days in the ward. Uh, you were loaded on a stretcher and taken to the gas up to Auschwitz too. And I was loaded, and as they took me through a, in the middle of the barrack, there was a hall to the doors. Dr. Rzeszko took me off the stretcher, brought me into the prep room, and gave me a lab coat, and he said, you'll be the cleaner. And why did he choose you? Well, I keep thinking that in the ward upstairs, there were two doctors, two Jewish doctors. One was a Polish Jewish doctor, and one was a French Jewish doctor. And there was a medical student who was working in the surgery, who was sent to Auschwitz for one year, and his he was going to be going home a week after I came in there. So I think somehow the discussion between the two doctors and Dr. Rzeszko, maybe that, you know, I didn't find anything out, but this is what I assume, you know, that happened. Because that medical student was there for a few days and then he was let go. But this happened to Polish political prisoners, you know, who's, they said that his crime was just, he was sent to Auschwitz for one year. And so I think this was it, but you know, they saved my life and I worked there in the operating room for six months. And that saved my life, you know, I ran the operating room and I was 15 and a half years old. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Would it, would it have, well, every time I talk to a Holocaust survivor, a camp survivor, there's always a story like that. Virtually no one seems to have survived just hard labor, hard labor, because you, you, those people tended just to die of exhaustion or beatings. You see, I think Primo Levi, who was an Italian Jewish survivor, he said, unless a door opened for you, you couldn't crawl out of this nether world. And for me, that opening was, this beating that I received from this SS guard, you see. I got into uh, the operating room through the, through the wound, and um, my life 
changed because uh, I didn't have to work outside under a couple and my rations were more improved. Um, and there were different layers of inmates in the camp. There were Polish political prisoners. They were the first ones there. They were called the prominent people. And it was a fight for survival. You know, it was a seniority kind of a thing. And anybody who had sharp, you know, uh, elbows, you had to fight for every second, for everything that you, uh, otherwise you didn't make it. You know, you had to be uh, resilient and you had to be, uh, you had to put one foot in front of the other and you, you could never give up, you know, so. These events are 75 years ago now and yet you describe them so vividly, like the, the time saying goodbye to your father through the chain link fence. Is that because? Do you still remember that, or is that because you've retold the story so many times? Well, you know, I tell my story, and I wrote my book of the pictures that I see in my head, you see. And this is the way I figured out, how am I going to write a book? I said, the, um, I wrote a book to the pictures, you see, and this is what I tell students. I'm a storyteller, and uh, uh, I think my... Uh, Long-term memory is, is um, very good. I remember things very vividly, and sure, I talk about it a lot. I mean, uh, this is what I talk about, but uh, it's, um, you will never forget it. Uh, so, um, and, and tell me, I, I know you had lots of experiences in the surgery, but could you tell me about when the, uh, when the, 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 um, the attempt was made to destroy the incinerators, that moment in the camp when you felt the energy that you might be able to rise up against the Germans? Well, there was a, one of the crematoria and gas chambers were blown up and... Um, by, by the Jewish inmates? By the, it was called the Zonderkommando. These were the people that worked there. And Zonderkommando, Zonder, mean, Zonder means a special unit. These people were living in the attic of the crematoria they were selected and their lifespan was 60 days. They were rotated. After 60 days, they were gassed because they were, they were made, they made sure the Nazis that this will never get out into the world of what was going on there. And um, so um, I remember there was a, a, a big alarm. The sirens were going when this breakout happened. Out of, I don't know how many hundreds that managed to break out, they were all shot, they had to run through three, and they were called postenkette, like chain links, like, you know, when you throw a little pebble into a lake, and you see that the rings, and this is what Auschwitz was guarded, with three chains of guards, with uh, all kinds of implements, you know, and patrol, and a few managed to get through into the forest, I heard about four, the rest were all shot. And um, November, all the three uh, gas chambers in Birkenau were blown up. And um, I, that was a sigh of relief because I knew now that you will not die from gas, but there was many other ways that they could kill you still, you know. But, but you, after that breakout, you witnessed the execution of the, of the women. Well, the, the execution of the men was in January the 6th, 1945. There was a German company, it was called the um, Union Ammunition Works. There were many women who were working there from Birkenau. So 
And these women were smuggling out explosives. It's, they were working in the, the Palwer Pavilion. This is the Palwer was explosive pavilion, you see. They managed to bring out explosives in the hands of their dresses, collected it, and it was somehow thrown into the Zonderkommando through the fence. And they built some uh, little Molotov cocktails from this sort, some explosive grenades. And the Nazis, they were able to, uh, they had a DNA for all the explosives and they could tell right away where it was manufactured. So it led them to Union Ammunition Work, which was just outside Birkenau. So they probably grabbed four girls and uh, they tried to get it out of them. They were beaten to a pulp. And these were not necessarily the four girls. These were just four girls. They were going to beat the heck out of them. And they would say, look, I didn't do it. Somebody else did, but they didn't. So we had to witness this on January the 6th, 1945, when they knew that they were finished, but they were sending us a message that we are still the bosses here, you know. Uh, we are the people. Uh, it was a message, and um, I will never forget that. The four girls, they were black and blue. They stood on the gallows and um, tall, and they each said two Hebrew words, Chazak Vemats. And thousands of us had to watch this, and which meant be strong and of good courage. And that was a, such a moment. There was a groan that just, I can remember this hum. And um, I think the deputy commander who was watching this, his guard, his Praetorian guard, hustled him out right away. From, and uh, as his guards, they took up their guns and their dogs, and they just pushed us back away and get out, get out, you know. And, and that moment passed. And I, I will never forget that. And I think about it, how these brave four girls were not thinking of their death. They were trying to tell us to be strong and brave. So um, this was a very cruel I mean, a system and the people who uh, did this, I don't know. It's uh, hard to imagine how people can kill and kill and kill. Could you, could you tell me about the death march when the Soviets were approaching? Well, the death march, <clears throat> I left on January the 12th, 1945. Uh, we could hear artillery barrage from a distance. <clears throat> there were fires all over Auschwitz one. They were burning information. Uh, every person that had a tattooed number, they kept perfect records. They had this idea that um, uh, order must be. So we had a tattooed number, they kept perfect records. They were burning all these cards by the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So there were fires burning and they were getting ready. And I could see this. I knew that this is the end. Well, how is it going to end? You know, I thought that they'll simply blow us up or kill us all. So that's not what they did. They forced us through the gates. It was a dark night. They were, I remember magnesium flares were dropped from somewhere. I think maybe it was a Russian plane. I don't know. And we marched through the gate and we started to march in this bitter cold snow. And we were marching for three days or three and a half days, day and night, no stop, without a stop. Five of us had to hook our hands together. And imagine keeping about 28,000 people in a column. 
uh, they were, you know, they were slowing down, and they, I realized that I cannot be in the back of the column because they were just picking him up. They shot him on the spot, and uh, then we were put into open box cars that carried coal, and we were put into these open box cars, and we were on uh, another nine days. So in total, it was thirteen days. We left Auschwitz one January the twelfth. Arrived in Mauthausen in Austria on January the twenty-fifth. Uh, it was bitter cold. I remember uh, the train came to a stop at a station about the eleventh um, or eleventh day after we left. There was not a crumb of bread given to us. No food. We're catching snowflakes, trying to hydrate yourself a little bit. Over 70% of the people didn't make it. They froze and they simply dropped them. So the train came to a stop. It was getting dark, probably about 5 o'clock. This was uh, January. I didn't know where we were. Everything was blacked out. This was the system during the war. Everything was blacked out. So And the trains wouldn't run at night because the locomotive would send sparks through the chimney. They were being picked up by Allied fighter planes, so everything was came to a stop, and there was a big bombing raid in the middle of the night. I remember shrapnel hitting the side of the cars, and uh, next morning um, I was able to look around, and I see the name on the station was Pilsen, uh, Czechoslovakia, occupied Czechoslovakia. So we are there, I don't know how many cars, we had a tremendous amount of cars. And SS patrols were patrolling all around us. And there was a commotion behind me, about five, six cars behind me. And um, there was an overhead bridge that people could go across over the uh, railway tracks. And there were Czech people with bread baskets throwing chunks of bread into the train, into these boxcars. And I tell you, that, that seeing that alone, I mean, I think it gave me three months to go. It was such an uplifting moment, even though I couldn't get a piece of bread. So the SS guards were yelling, don't throw bread, these are Jews. The Czechs simply kept throwing bread. And they took off their schmeizers, their submachine guns, and they sprayed the bridge, and the people ran away. And uh, I will never forget that, because a few days later, the train came, to, our journey came to an end. It was January 25th. We had to get out of these boxcars, and there was a big river, and ice flow was going down, and somebody said, this, this must be the Danube. Ice flow was going down the river, and there was a big bridge, and I thought, this is it. They're going to line us up and shoot us. The train couldn't go across the bridge because the bridge was damaged by Allied bombings. So that was a feat to get over missing railway ties. Many people were falling through the cracks into the ice flow, they never made it. And then we are going uphill, and we come to a beautiful town, I could see the name, Mauthausen. And I'm looking around, this was the first time in, a, in a nine months that I saw a civilians. You know, nine months incarcerated by the Nazis was like nine million years, you know. I thought that I'd been there forever. And I see the beautiful homes with sparkling windows, with curtains, and I thought, my God, you know what we look like? We're black and a stinking mess, black from frostbite. And uh, 
I thought that if I could get into one of these homes and have a bath, I would die happily. And then I see uh, three young women pulling sleighs on the sidewalk. There was a lot of snow. There were children bundled up with rosy cheeks, knitted hats and scarves. And their eyes were bugged out looking at these monsters walking in the middle of the road. And the women that were young women that were pulling the sleighs, they looked the other way. They didn't want to see us. It was such a juxtaposition between Pilsen and Mauthausen. Oh, we didn't know what was going on here. And as we go on, we pass through this town. Uh, we are near a mountain of granite, and I see people hacking away with chisels on the side of a sheer mountain. I said, oh my God, is this what we're going to have to do? Is, and you know, Mauthausen, is, they had the granite. Uh, that's where they were... They had 110 steps to go up, and the punishment was they had to carry a slab of granite and go up and down until they dropped that. So I was in Mauthausen for four days, and uh, there were four horrible days. They were put on the train and sent to a camp called Melk. It was on the Danube. Um, did, you, did you want to go on living? Why, why, why did you... Well, how did you put one foot in front of another? I would never give up. I don't know. I just had this urge that I want to go on. And um, I kept my mind going all the time and looking at things. And I remember in Melk, it was an old uh, cavalry barrack from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. On the other side, a distance away on a hill, was the biggest Franciscan monastery in Melk in Europe. And I always kept looking at the beauty of this building. I mean, these are the things that kept my mind going, you see. And um, so the next day, they loaded us into a, a unit, and they, we were marched down to the railway tracks. The Danube, the river was busy. Boats were hauling people from Vienna. They were running away from the Soviets, and they were running towards Americans. So... Um, we were put into cattle cars and taken to the work, to the tunnel, and there were six shafts that they were drilling into the mountain. And these were huge shafts. The uh, locomotive would push in several cars. They were building aircraft parts. And uh, I was given a, one of these electric drills, and we were drilling the shape of the inside of the tunnel. We were sort of cutting steps, and I was right on top. And I got this huge electric drill that was working on air, and it was shaking me, and I couldn't lift this. And there was a, a towed organization, a civilian organization, who were doing the manufacturing or, or the digging of these tunnels. And I said, I can't do this. It's, he said, okay. Uh, he gave me a job to collect all the bits that broke it was terrible work, and um, um, so um, it saved my life. I didn't have to do this work, and I was—I got so sick there in Melk. I got the first time that I was really down and out. I had, must have had a stomach flu, and uh, I couldn't eat, and I had diarrhea, and uh, and I was taking these drills out to the smithy, to the blacksmith was out in the yard, and uh, he was welding these, and I told him, I have, I'm really sick, and he said, eat charcoal. And I was eating charcoal for two days. 
And um, after the, on the third day, finally the poison left me. And um, so you read, you read it in the book. Um, there were always some people that sort of helped me move myself ahead, you know, gave me a helping hand. And otherwise, you couldn't exist, you know. But you, and, t- and tell me about that last camp, the conditions there right at the, in the last days of the war. Well, the camp was Abensee. Uh, it was in a plateau. Abensee is a lake. And this is now, we arrived at the beginning of April, 1945. Uh, there was no more work. I mean, the Reich was finished. And um, they shut the camp, and they didn't give us our rations anymore. And the typhus broke out. We were infested with lice, and there was no medication and uh, no water. People were simply dying by the thousands. And I had, I got typhus, and I had very high fever. I was in the lower bunk. I couldn't get up to the second, to the middle. And um, May the 6th, um, somebody shuffled in. Uh, in his wooden clogs, a skeleton. I mean, we were all skeletal by now. And he kept saying that the guards are no longer in the towers. And I tell you, I couldn't move, but I knew that if I don't get out of this bunk, I don't crawl out, I will never make it. And as I write in my book, I woke up from my fever dream. There were a few men sitting around a little pot-bellied stove and I could smell something was cooking like meat. And that smell of meat made me even sicker. I couldn't, you know, once your life is, you're hanging by a thread, your life is ebbing away. You don't want to smell food or eat food. It made me so sick. And I, um, so um, this was maybe a day or two before the Americans arrived. So I crawled out to the latrine in the back of the barrack. That's where the bodies were thrown in. And I saw a lot of bodies with pinched out a little bit of muscle on their buttocks because there was no meat on any one of uh, these bodies. There was some uh, muscle left and they were pinched out. And I realized that these people were cooking this, you know, from dead bodies. And they were, but you know, this, this is how people try to survive. Uh, so anyway, I crawled out from my bunk and, um, I could hear some heavy equipment grinding away, and I could see there was a white flag flying over the gate, and suddenly the gate came flying in, and the big tank is coming through. It had a white star on it, and there were black soldiers sitting on the turret. And this was May the 6th, 1945. This tank unit was called a, the 761st Black Panther Tank Battalion. They were attached to General Patton's Third Army, I will never forget their eyes. They were in total shock. They came through the Battle of the Bulge. This was the first camp they liberated. Abensee, Gunskirchen, and Mauthausen. So these were fighting men, and was, they, they were in this hellhole. You know, in May of 1945, there were thousands and thousands of bodies who were rotting. You know. We couldn't smell it because we lived with this, but these guys, you know, they were in total shock. Their eyes were like saucers. And I had the good luck to meet up with Johnny Stevens, who was the head of the squadron of tanks. 
and uh, they radioed because the war was still on for two more days. And another unit came, the 48th U.S. Infantry Division, and that was liberation day for me. I tell you, I was liberated, but you know, I can't say that I was free because I was down and out. The Americans uh, tried to do the best they could, but how do you deal with thousands of people who are dying and have that? And uh, when they gave us food, it killed us. They cooked up a stew, they brought up army kitchens and army nurses, these beautiful girls, they had to pick us up, we were so filthy. Our skin was like the skin of a snake, you know. We were being DDT'd, we were full of lice, they cut off these rags and they put us down into uh, army cots. And it was the first time that I, in months that I was sleeping on a canvas cot. And... Um, Why did the food kill people? Well, we, our, we had no stomachs left, you know. We had no intestine, we couldn't process protein. It was the worst thing that you can give to a person who is, uh, have gone, whose system is totally shut down. The irony was that we were dying from starvation, many were, died from starvation. Now when they gave us food, it killed us. It took me three years until I could process food, uh, you know, the proper way. And uh, it, it plays, you know, you work with such adrenaline when you are in a camp. I mean, to survive from second to second and I guess all of a sudden it is a lot of, it took me three years to become a normal person, both physically and mentally. In Marienbad, I was in this uh, orphanage. So, so on, uh, on V-Day, you, you were how old? I was 16. And how many family members were left to, that, you, that you knew about? Well, I had to make my way back home to Czechoslovakia. I had nowhere else to go. And uh, coming home, I knew that there'll be nobody there. It would be a miracle. And I was hoping that my, my Alsatian would be there, Farkas. A farmer gave me the lift for the last few kilometers. And I could see my home from a distance of about a kilometer away. I mean, that house, that home, it seemed to me I was away for a million years. It was such a busy place a year before, three families. My, pater my paternal grandparents, my uncle Nat, my family. Chickens, geese, and ducks were roaming around. We had a huge orchard, fruit trees. We had a big Alsatian and two fox terriers. And I'm coming closer, it's a dead place, and I open the door to my mother's kitchen, and there's a neighbor sitting there. I was a sight that you couldn't imagine. I was wearing a Hitler Youth shirt, and corduroy breeches, Americans found a huge warehouse full of Hitler Youth shirts because they couldn't give us any clothing, you know, that was the only thing that... And I told her who I was and she was not happy to see me. You see, when we were taken away on that first night, after we finished our Passover dinner, that truly for my family was the Last Supper, never to be repeated again. The next day, the exodus of 500 Jews from my town, and out of 500, 480 didn't come back. Less than 20 returned, survived. Only one mother with two teenage daughters. So here I am in this home where a person wouldn't give me a glass of water. How do you pick up the pieces, you see? And, um, 
I went through all kinds of trials and tribulations. I wound up in a hospital. I had pleurisy. And um, and in 48, I had three years in this orphanage. My friends, my family were 40 boys who were all orphans from Hungary, Romania, Poland, Slovakia. And uh, then the communists took over overnight in 1948, in September or so. And we knew that we had to get our backpacks and get the heck out of Czechoslovakia. Can I ask, you said it took three years to recover your body and mind. How How, how is that possible? Surely it takes a lifetime. Uh, are you ever fully recovered from an experience like that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I recovered. Many people have not. Many people, um, I hear all kinds of stories. Many survivors wouldn't tell their story of what happened to their children, and perhaps that was a mistake. And, um, you know, I had a wonderful life. Marienbad was such a beautiful place, the beauty of that place. I became a normal person. I was reading books, um, the, all the classics in Czech. And um, we had a lot of fun. And um, I arrived in Canada. I was 20 years old. I got off the ship in Quebec City, and uh, I kissed the ground. I knew that I was home. I had less than a dollar in change in my pocket, and uh, I was put on a train and sent to Toronto. And uh, so out of 80 people <clears throat> of my family, only three of us survived. A cousin from my father's side, a cousin from my mother's side. So the happy ending, perhaps, I mean, that was a sad ending, a terrible ending. But something I didn't know, and you know, my book, the title of my book is By Chance Alone. So it took me years and years to write this book. I've tried everything. I couldn't sit down and discipline myself to write a story. And uh, finally, I realized thousands of students are asking me, Mr. Eisen, did you put it down? And finally, I said, OK. So my memoirs, uh, I had my memoirs finished, and I was going on a march of the living in 2015. I sent it to HarperCollins, and the editor, Jim Gifford, was with me in Auschwitz about 12 years ago, and I kept sort of in touch with him. I said to him, Jim, I have my memoirs. I'm going to send it to you by click of a button, and I'm going on the March of the Living. I'll be back in two weeks. Uh, I just want you to tell me whether it's worth anything for a book or not. He said, well, I'll have to look at it, send it. So um, two days later, I had a uh, email from HarperCollins that they would be um, honored to publish my book. I tell you, I just about flipped. So I went on the March of the Living, and. Um, you know, you go through the process of signing a contract and publishing a book. It's a big, big job. But So <clears throat> a year later, in 2016, after it was launched, I had a phone call from New York, and this fellow said, my name is Josh Eisen. He said, I just picked up your book on Amazon. And he said, we are cousins. He says, his grandfather and my grandfather were brothers. I said, how? 
He said, well, look, I'll be in Toronto tomorrow. And I'll bring the family tree. So he brought a family tree. I didn't know that my grandfather had six siblings who emigrated to the States in 1919. Nobody told me that. So he brought me all this information. A year later, in 2017, we had a gathering in Manhattan. 98 people of my grandfather's siblings, three and four generations came to this gathering. You see, by chance alone, it was, everything was by chance alone, really. Uh, it is such a, had I not published this book, had I not written it, I would have never found out that there's a large batch of Eisens living in, in the States. So, um, and so Josh went to Europe and he found a headstone of our great-grandfather. Um, it's in a town. It's, you know, many stones in Jewish cemeteries are gone or broken down or sunk into the ground. This one is standing there. Beautiful, you can read it. He was buried in 1906. His name was Jacob Eisen. And my uncle, my father's brother, was named after him. You know, Hebrew names are after the, sometimes the grandfather or great-grandfather. So um, this is a good ending to this story. Do you, do you look back with hatred at the people who did those awful things to you and your family and your family? No, I don't. I don't. I never had this hatred. You know, I came to this country. We left Europe. We left all this terrible package behind. I came focused that I need to start a new life. I will never forget it, you know. I would think when I... I often went to Europe and uh, sometimes in the summer uh, I used to go to a big... Uh, to, uh, <clears throat> sort of, to the big plastic shows. I was in a short sleeve shirt and somebody saw my tattooed number. Oh, he said, I know what that is. He says, oh, you know, we had it so bad here, you know, my mother had to stand in line for bread. Yeah. So uh, I never had hatred. But if I would meet somebody who is older than I, I would be thinking, what were you doing between 39 and 45? I mean, I meet a lot of German people, and I say there's no collective guilt. And, um, but I'm going back again with my son, my sons are identical twins. So one was with me a couple of years ago. Now he's coming. This will be his first time. It's a very difficult thing. Going back to Auschwitz is difficult. Yeah, especially with my son. I'm going to introduce him to his first family, you know, and gas chamber crematoria too. This is a marker. That's it. There's no other marker. So... Um, you, you go there and you come back with more questions. You know. But why do you go back? Well, I feel what drives me, uh, look, I know how it started in Nazi Germany. It started with words. It started with boycotting Jews stores in Germany. Jews were removed from everyday life. Boycott, divestment and sanctions. Do you know that these three things are the biggest thing in North America against Israel? Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. That is telling me that this poison has come back 
And it's here too, in universities. So it starts with words and it ends with terrible places. And so last year, my, there was a poster about this high with my face on it, beside a synagogue, beside several synagogues. The Jewish Federation supports Holocaust education. On July, on a Friday night on the Sabbath, somebody crawled out from a hole and ambled over to the synagogue and put on, on my forehead a word, Achtung, sent a message. So, um, and I know what Achtung means. Many people wouldn't know what Achtung means. They say, well, it was a crackpot. No, that was a terrorist act, you know, to terrorize. And I always tell this in schools, this is not a Jewish problem. You need to understand how the, it progressed in Nazi Germany, starting with words and the terrible acts of killing. So, um, is that why you tell? Why why are you so passionate about sharing? Why should we remember history? Are some things well, best that we don't think about? You don't want to repeat the same things. And I tell them. I said, look, the only way that we can stop this, everybody needs to say, you, we will not allow you to do this. You cannot do this in my school, in my city, in my town, in my country. If we want to keep our world a free society and live in freedom. Because the reverse of it, you know, if we allow this poison to spread, then we'll lose our freedom and our way of life because it's just look at what happened to Nazi Germany. And I say, look, Canadian teenagers, you know, in Canada, there was no conscription. The first kids that volunteered, there were 17,000 Jewish kids that volunteered to join and go to fight this Nazi evil in Europe. Tens of thousands of Canadians from the Dominion people went to fight this Nazi supremacist ideology. Tens of thousands of them died so that we can live in a free society today. Are we going to allow this to happen here? You know, so uh, going to schools, 32 years I've been speaking. When a grade 10 student comes up to me, I say to them, look, listen to the Canadian anthem. Canada, glorious and free, we stand on guard for thee. He said to me, Mr. Eisen, he shook my hand. I promise you, I will stand on guard for Canada. This is why we are speaking out, because we have seen it. We have seen the devil, we have seen how it starts by words, Propaganda, people buy it and get on board. You need to sift on what you hear. And in the book you say you also remember your father's last words. I remember my father's last words. Um, if you survive, you must tell the world what happened. So... You've been doing that ever since. Yeah. And I've been doing that for um, quite a while. I mean, my second career after I had a successful career in business uh, I didn't sit on a lazy chair and I've been I have a whole new career and um, this keeps me going and I can tell you that for me that I can speak to teenagers I can speak to grade 5 kids to university students to police to uh, heads of school boards 
and I'm invited back, and uh, it has grown to such a thing now that. Um, so, well, Max Eisen, your book is by chance alone. Thank you for sparing this time. You're welcome. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.